Welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. On today's episode, Ian sits down with Chris Yu, Army veteran and CEO of Zebo, a digital financial services platform which provides individual landlords banking, insurance, and payment services. Previously, Chris served as CEO of MicroFocus and was an executive vice president for Hewlett Packard and senior vice president at HP. He also served as a top executive in private equity for six years, during which he advised entrepreneurs and led turnaround efforts at companies including Dollar General, U.S. Food Service, and Del Monte Foods. On this episode, Ian and Chris share their experiences at West Point, what it was like for Chris leaving the military and entering into the civilian world, and how he got his start in corporate work, private equity, and now a CEO of his own company. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org, and we have in studio, Chris, what's going on? Hey, how's it going, Ian? Good to be here. It's a great day. Uh, It's a great day to talk about the amazing company that you're building in Zebo. But first, let's talk military stuff. How did you decide to go into the military in the first place? Well, I grew up in a family with a father who had lived through the Japanese occupation of China in the Communist Revolution and escaped in 1949 from mainland China to Taiwan, basically was a refugee and spent the majority of his kind of young adult years trying to get to the United States, frankly, to live the American dream. Found a way to get to the U.S. through a scholarship uh, after he put himself through school in Taiwan and ended up coming to the United States on a on an academic uh, visa. And uh, he just raised us with an appreciation that freedom's not free and that the people that uh, value and love freedom need to have a responsibility uh, to essentially defend freedom. And uh, both my brother and I decided to join the Army, and both of us went to West Point. So what was it like you know, once you got into West Point, well, I mean, I'm sure your dad was probably maybe not expecting that that would happen. Uh, I don't know. Um, what, what was that process like? Well, my dad, when I told him that I was interested in West Point was ecstatic and he really helped me do all the process that it takes. West Point is extremely hard to get into and the application process takes years. Um, and we didn't know any congressmen. Uh, we were kind of poor Chinese, Irish, Cajun kids in Louisiana. And, uh, uh, so we wrote a bunch of letters and did the whole application process. And when I got in, he was, uh, ecstatic, you know, unlike today where lots of my friends, they go on these like national tours of all these campuses and they bring their kids on like college tours. Like we didn't have money to travel to see any schools. So I, uh, I showed up at West Point the first day, not ever having seen it. Oh, that's crazy. And it was painful. <laughs> it really is. I remember the first time that I went, I went with my mom and I was like, you know, I, I was used to joke that it was, it was my backup school because they do early admission. So I was in, I got in like six months before when I was applying to all the other colleges. And so once you tell all these people, <laughs> they're like, oh, you know, like, I already got into West Point and then every adult, like every one of my friend's parents were like, oh, you're going, right? Like you have to go. But I remember when I went and visited and I was like, it was like fall and it was like gorgeous and all this stuff. And you're like, man, this <laughs> this place seems pretty great. Well, that's from the outside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So then how was your, how was your time there? What was it like going through? 
I would say it's probably the thing that most shaped my character and also just, you know, frankly, created opportunity for me that I would have never had otherwise. And frankly, also kind of made me a citizen of the world that really opened my mind to what the whole world was about. And I think, you know, growing up in, in Southern Louisiana, you know, you have a kind of a narrow view of the world. In fact, outside of West Point, I only applied to Tulane and LSU. So, you know, I think that that was probably the, the most impactful thing was just studying history and studying political science from people that were making history in political science. And I think that uh, really opened my eyes up to the world. Yeah, I remember we were doing some case studies in school and some of my teachers and my professors were like there in the case studies. They're like, yeah, I was in, you know, whatever, uh, OEF one or OIF one or whatever, uh, in 2003 or, or whatever it was. And I was just like blown away by that. I'm like, you knew these, like you, these are like case studies being studied, like, you know, by Harvard and stuff like that. And you were, you were there on the ground. I was just like, it's just crazy that you're, you know, working or you're learning from people that were actually like, writing the history books. That's right. Did you find the pressure from graduating from there and then going to be a lieutenant and going into like leadership for the first time brand new? What was that like? You know, it was actually, I found West Point to be probably the kind of the pinnacle of my life from the standpoint of the academic stimulation and the physical stimulation and the teaming and the development and the focus on leadership and growth. And then interestingly enough, when I got into the army, I had this kind of period of like, what? Because, you know, it goes from that remarkably uh, fast paced, tough, really challenging, stretching environment to one that's, you know, the army. And it's, uh, you know, you go to officer basic course and you go learn about you know, whatever particular branch you went to, I was a tank officer. So I went and I learned about tanks, but the pace of the learning was so slow. I was bored out of my mind. And, you know, and the only place to eat, you know, West Point, you have healthy food, three meals a day. And they basically, you walk in and they give it to you and you eat fast in 20 minutes and you're out and you're back doing all your activities and you're always working out. In the army, the only, like you either had to cook for yourself or you went to Burger King. Yep. And there was a Burger King on every post. And I ate a lot of Burger King, breakfast, <laughs> lunch, and dinner. And I became fat. You know, I really gained a lot of weight. And I became a little, you know, lazy and slept in a lot. And, you know, it was just, uh, it was a it was a real kind of challenge to make that transition from West Point to the Army. And then over time, I started getting into things like Ranger School and Airborne School and things that were really challenging me physically and mentally. And that really kind of brought me on a different curve. And then when you get to your first unit, which is in my case, it was a full year from the time I graduated from West Point to the time I made it to my first unit, then you're thrown into the deep end. You you walk in, you've been learning for years about what it's like to lead. Then you show up and they say, oh, you're your tank platoon is downrange in Grafenvir and you should go meet them down there. You're going to meet your platoon sergeant and you're going to take charge of the tank platoon. And you're like, what? And so you're immediately from one day to the next, you, you, you get into the unit and the next day you're actually leading them in a live fire exercise. And that was a, that was a really, really a shock. 
did you kind of have an idea of like what your leadership philosophy would be and how you would work with your platoon sergeant and how would you would be a leader and then kind of get faced with the reality of like this isn't exactly how I how I wrote it in my head? Yeah, well, I think there's there's how you write it in your head and how you study it and how you think about it. And I had written a three by five card around like, you know, here are the key elements of leadership that I'm going to employ in my organization. And you assume, you know, when you're leading at West Point, all the cadets are like really look up to you and they really want to follow you. (laughs) When you go to the army and you're a 22 year old kid, who's like literally first day on the job and you're leading people that are in their mid forties and have been doing this for a long, long time. And you, and you get them together and you say, okay, guys, this is the way we're going to do things. And they look at you like, Oh God, how much longer is this guy going to last? You know, when's he going to lose that, you know, that, uh, newness, that shine that he has. And, uh, I think it's, it's, it's really eye opening because you, you have to kind of work yourself into the culture of that organization to really start to have influence. And I think that's true even of large organizations today. Yeah. And, you know, we'll get into this a little later when you, when you went into your civilian career, but were there things like even early on then that you learned about joining a new organization um, coming in that you kind of kept with you for the rest of your career? Yeah, I think uh, probably first and foremost is, uh, is humility. I think, uh, and I, I mean, I learned this myself, but I also saw lots of other people make lots of mistakes. And when you realize that you actually know far less than all the other people in your organization about their particular job and the organization itself, and your first job is to connect with the people um, on a personal and emotional level, uh, they have to like you or respect you or at least think that you have their best interests in mind. You have to build trust before you can lead. And I think that is I learned early on. I mean, you know, I came into this unit. It's a very interesting story. I, you know, graduated top of my class at West Point and West Point's the probably most merit-based organization in the world. Wait, you'd like the top? Well, close to the top. I wasn't yeah. the top. I, I was, was like, a couple, I could touch the top. Let's yeah. just say that. <laughs> to be clear, I could not touch the top. <laughs> and in West Point, basically based on your ranking class, they sit you in order and you get to pick the things that you want to pick. And, you know, back when I was uh, graduating, the things that were very popular were uh, cavalry because yep. it was post the first Gulf War. And we had watched the cavalry ride across the desert and blow everything up. And, you know, if you're a West Point cadet and you're watching that on TV, you think it's pretty cool. And my eyes weren't good enough to fly. So I wanted to be armored cavalry. And the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment in Folder Gap, Germany was the top unit in the yeah. world that everybody wanted to go to. And literally the only, the top 10 people in our class got to choose that. But the day that I got to Germany, I got a call from my sponsor at the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. And he said, unfortunately, we've been deactivated. This was post-Cold War. So a lot of the units in the Folda Gap, which is where we thought the the Russians were going to come through, uh, got deactivated. And so I was sent to this heavy armor battalion that was you know, pretty low speed relative to the 11th ACR. And, you know, here I was top of my class. I was uh, one of the only Ranger qualified armor officers in the army. I mean, at at least in my cohort, it was, I was airborne, I was air assault. 
was ranger school, which is all these like high speed infantry type things. And I end up in a heavy armor battalion where like nobody values any of that stuff. Yeah, totally. And so if I anything, show, it's worse. In, in fact, yeah, they look like, well, why the hell would you go to ranger school? I mean, and that's you have, a complete waste of your time. You have all the stuff on you your know, chest and you're you, like. And it, it kind of labels you as like a hard charger. And this is a unit where you didn't necessarily want to be a hard charger. And so, you know, coming in thinking you're one of the top and then having to really be humble and kind of step back a bit and connect with these people was, was really hard. It's funny you say that. I, I remember going into my first unit and having a lot of the, you talk about the humility and like, I, the one thing I knew that gets drilled into you at West Point is like, listen to your, you know, listen to your platoon sergeant that's like drilled in. So like, I knew that I went in to do that. But the thing that I never, cause I was uh, on battalion staff. And so I was the battalion S1. And uh, the thing that I didn't realize was that the thing I was going to fight the most was the way it's always been of like, I had to fight my battalion S3 constantly, who was a major who's like, oh no, this is just how it is. But what you forget or what you don't know is like, yeah, you're a second lieutenant, but that major, that was the first time he'd ever been at battalion S3. Like it was his first time doing that too. And I always think that and the, our exo well, the rank thing gets in the way too, because he's, you know, 15 years, your senior and in the military, you know, you're supposed to really, uh, kind of, uh, follow the orders of the senior ranking officers. So that's a, another dimension of challenge. Yeah. And so when you walk into an organization and you just like ask why or why not about certain things of like, why do we do things this way? And there's so many things that when you come into an organization that is like, you know, the way we do business, which is super important. But there's also the other side of that is like the way we do business that might not always be right. And I think that there's <laughs> that fine line of like, hey, we do X, Y, and Z and being able to like respect traditions and respect people's authority and respect seniority, but also like, you're Challenge, the, yeah. yeah, you're there to, to lead and to make things better. And you can't make things better by just keeping the status quo. No, totally. I, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I had, and it was actually a lonely place, was pretty quickly, you know, a month or two into my role as a platoon leader. I'm a 22-year-old kid, brand new, leading a tank platoon with, uh, you know, a, a 15 soldiers. And uh, I had to fire my platoon sergeant. And to your point, like the platoon sergeant is the key guy who is driving the the organization and lieutenants come and go and platoon sergeants really tend to be the glue that holds that whole thing together. Uh, and that was really tough. I, not many people had ever had an experience like that uh, as a brand new second lieutenant. And, and they don't train you for that. No, they don't. Because that's the thing is like, if you're, even if you put that inkling into like, especially at West Point, if you put that inkling into people's heads that like, Hey, you might go in and fire your platoon sergeant. There's probably enough people that would not be, would not <laughs> use that in the best way. No, no, absolutely not. And you know, it's just, it was one of those things where sometimes if somebody steps over, you know, an ethical line that, you know, in wartime could kill somebody, Yep. you know, you have to make tough tough decision. And, you know, as a 22 year old kid, that's probably the hardest decision I ever made, but you know, definitely the right decision. That's crazy. How'd they take that? How'd the rest of the platoon take that? Well, look, I mean, you don't have a lot of credibility when you're a brand new second Lieutenant and, um, you know, they were 
shocked. And it took me a long time. Actually, what I didn't realize is it took me a long time to recruit another platoon sergeant. Um, so I had to actually pr- promote a more junior person into that role because, you know, it's hard to recruit a platoon sergeant when you just fired one and nobody ever fires their platoon sergeant. So, you know, that was a, that was a, a, a lesson. And, you know, look, we, we took more junior people, gave them an opportunity and saw them step up and do great job. So, you know, I think that was also a key lesson that I've taken throughout my career. I've always taken risk on really talented young people who are less experienced people who we think can step up and, and, and do a great job. So why did you decide to get out? You know, it's a, it really is an interesting uh, thing. I, I, uh, I was a career guy. I like was, I didn't have any intention on getting out of the army. I was there for life. I loved it. And I think maybe, uh, kind of two things happened. Uh, one was, uh, I got married (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, I married a German uh, girl, a, a girl that I had met while I was stationed in Germany. And she didn't fully understand the whole concept of patriotism in the United States. And, you know, really wanting to kind of contribute your life to service, to defend freedom. And so there was a lot of home conversations around that versus, you know, I, I was, you know, as I mentioned before, I'd done really well in school and I was a mathematical economics and mechanical engineering major. And my wife couldn't understand how running around shooting guns and blowing stuff up and driving cool vehicles around the desert, uh, the high desert in Yakima, uh, Washington was, uh, was ever going to get us to a point where I would have a career that was differentiated. So that was one thing. I think the other one was I had been given a, um, the only slot at West Point guaranteed slot to go back and teach economics. So I was going to go teach mathematical economics and it was a slot to go get a master's degree in, um, in business or finance or economics anywhere in the world funded by the U S government. And in order to get that, in order to um, meet the criteria for that, I would have had to have been in my company command by a certain time frame. And the army was in a kind of a drawdown in the in the kind of the Clinton years. And what what happened was there just weren't enough slots for command, so the command timelines got pushed way yep. out. And I wasn't going to make the window for that educational slot which meant that I was going to forego my West Point teaching assignment. And the army said, oh, well, you could go to recruiting command. And I just said, there's no way I'm doing that. And I got out because I'd already served my commitment. I, from decision to uh, civilian job offer was one month. It's crazy how many stories you hear that are exactly like that, right? Of, you know, it's, uh, there are certain things that if you want to do in your military career, don't, don't necessarily track. Whereas when you get out in the civilian world, you know how, now have a bevy of opportunities. You can go anywhere. Um, where did you decide to go? Well, it's funny. It's a funny story because I was, you know, I had literally had no clue. I mean, when I tell you uh, coming out of the military and I, I really mentor and help a lot of guys coming out of the military today, because I remember when you're in the military, I was in five and a half years and, you know, four years at West Point before that. So nine and a half years of military service And you don't actually know what jobs are out there. You don't even know what careers are. I'm thinking I'm getting out. I go to a headhunter who's like, okay, we're going to bring you to a job fair. And they basically looked at my career and my resume and they said, hey, you're relatively smart. So we're going to like narrow you and put you in front of these other, you know, groups of people. 
And then I called the buddy of mine who was a valedictorian in my class and said, what should I do? And he said, listen, you should go into brand management. And I said, why brand management? And he said, because it's just like the army. He was an armor officer. He's like, it's all about leadership and marketing to a target. And I thought, oh, well, so I can shoot a target so I can market to a target. <laughs> leadership I can do on the inside. I can do it on that. I got it. That totally makes sense to me. I'm going to go be a brand manager. And, uh, and so I went and started interviewing with Kraft, General Mills, and Procter & Gamble. And uh, because all three of those institutions were hiring junior military officers into post-MBA jobs, and they're great jobs, and they're great general management. I, I learned a ton. But at the time, I literally had no idea what marketing was. And I read a book that was 101 Rules of Marketing. And I went and did all my interviews and they'd say, they'd ask me all these marketing questions. And I'm like, that's rule number three, <laughs> you know, really understand your customer. And like, I must've sounded like a complete fool, but at least I had a resume that said that I was academically intelligent. <laughs> that is so funny. It's, I, I talk about all the time on, on our marketing trends podcast. And uh, when we talk to people who are vets that ended up like being in marketing it's actually one of the jobs in the army that you literally have zero qualifications for. Like, like <laughs> there's nobody, there's very, 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 very few people in the army who either sell or market products. Like <laughs> it's like the, the two things that like, we actually don't have any hard skills for. Well, I mean, they ask you about innovation and you're like, well, this one time we were in the field and the enemy came down from our right flank and we went into the defilade position. Yeah. We popped smoke so they couldn't see us. And then we maneuvered around to the left and caught them on the flank. Like, what is that's innovation? <laughs> I mean, there's just like you have no idea what you're talking about. The like soft skills of like, you know, being super organized and prepared and planning for every scenario and like convincing senior leaders of your plan and all that sort of stuff. Like, yeah, that's all great. But if you don't speak the language, if you don't know the you know, 101 rules, if you don't have any understanding of that stuff, it's like none of that other stuff matters. And it's one of the things that I think, I really think that vets miss out on is you have to go do the research. That's why, you know, like whether it's getting an MBA or whether it's, you know, going and just learning from YouTube, same difference. Like you need to just know the language of business. And that's one of the biggest things that like, totally. if you don't know the language, like you are going to sound like an idiot. Well, listen, I mean, a lot of kids, a lot of the uh, junior military officers go to business school and they learn a lot. They have two years to really think and talk to classmates and do an internship and learn that stuff. I went from being the XO of the HHC command at first Corps, which was a 450 unit soldier, uh, soldier unit to sitting in a cube in Minneapolis at General Mills being a brand manager. And I remember I got there and they're like, that's your cube. And I had a corner office overlooking the parade ground. I yeah. had 50 direct reports. I had vehicles and, and equipment and access to a plane and you, know, you name it. And then I get to General Mills and they're like, there's your cube. And I'm like, well, where's my team? And they said, well, you don't have a team. I said, well, I thought this was a leadership and management role. And they said, oh, yes, this is a matrix organization. And I'm like, well, what's a matrix organization? That means like you have no people. Your job is to influence people. You lead through influence. I said, well, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and then 
And then they gave me a laptop and said, hey, look, you know, um, you got Microsoft Excel. You need to go pull down a bunch of data from AC Nielsen and do this analysis. And I said, what's Excel? I was like, um, do you guys have Quattro Pro? Because when I was an engineer in undergrad, we were using Quattro Pro. And so this whole, like, I mean, there were like, I missed a whole se sequence of technology and tools. And uh, so it was a one hell of a learning ramp up. You know, it's funny. So we, um, at West Point, we had, uh, we were given Dells and, uh, and so when I got out of the military, you know, you have to turn all that stuff back in <laughs> and you're like, I literally didn't have a computer. I mean, I'm like, why would I, I've been issued a computer for the last 10 years of my life. Like I don't even own a computer, uh, just like that process. And then, uh, the company that I went to, it was just like that awkward conversation where you're like. Hey, so I, do I get a computer from you? And then now, you know, with, with, I, I'm, I'm sure your company is the same way. I'm like, everybody has their own computer, right? You just bring your own computer to work. Exactly. You don't even need, you don't even exactly. provide that stuff. It's one of those little funny things that you just couldn't be prepared for, you know, when you get out of the military, there's just all those little things that you just I don't mean, even my, know. My 11 year old has her own laptop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's my nine year old nephew, that, that's what he wanted for Christmas last year. And yesterday was his birthday and he wanted an email address. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> that's pretty great. So we were emailing last night. You know, and what's funny, I, to to talk about the the General Mills, Johnson Johnson, Procter & Gamble, those companies have actually been led by amazing CEOs that are West Point grads. Uh, not all of them, but, uh, you know, J&J &J and P&G. And uh, what's interesting is that moment in time was, those were like the premier jobs to get those, oh those marketing manager roles. I mean, those brands were all, you know, billion dollar brands. Like it was a huge deal. And you decided to leave to go into well, consulting. It was, it was actually a huge deal, but I didn't know. Yeah, I yeah, literally yeah. got the guy that told me that it's about targeting and leadership, <laughs> but I just, you know, I just followed that. So I'm curious, like how you, how you took that, you know, what were those few years like? And then, you know, going into consulting, which is something completely different. When I was at General Mills, I was one of five people in the whole company that didn't have an MBA from a top five school. And so I was in that same role as all those people. And so they would all go to their Kellogg, you know, kind of group. And then some would go to their Wharton group and then the Harvard group. And then there was, you know, the Tuck group. And there was all these like little kind of cohorts of people. And I was like in the junior military officer group with which there were four other people. And there was like one other person who was not one of us who had, you know, not gotten an MBA that was a leader in marketing. And so I kind of, I'm not a very quick learner, but I was kind of <laughs> like, well, I kind of want to be a part of a group. And um, uh, these groups kind of seemed to be a big part of the company. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do brand management for the rest of my life because I could see it was almost like the military in a way I could see a 20 year path to you do this job, then you do this job, then you do this job. And it was like the same job, but bigger. And, um, and so I applied to Kellogg had a one year program and I was older because I'd been in the army and I'd done a couple of years there. So I didn't want to go spend two years of business school. So I got into their accelerated program, which is a one year, you know, June to June program. So I went to Kellogg and, um, while I was there, that program only has 75 people and half of them are management consultants and half of them are investment bankers. I mean, that's oh, basically wow. it. And so I spent a lot of time with investment bankers and management consultants. I said, well, I should try both of these. And so I, when I left Kellogg, I had an offer from McKinsey and an offer from Goldman Sachs. And I decided I wanted to go to McKinsey. 
And I decided that I want to do that because when I went back to General Mills and I talked to some of my mentors about what I wanted to do because General Mills had sponsored me, they said, well, you should go to McKinsey because if you don't like it, you can always come back. And that's when I started to get like this. I was a game theorist in mathematical economics in undergrad. So I'm like, oh, the option value, I can actually <laughs> go there. And then there's like no issue with going back. So there was more value in doing that transition. So that's kind of how I made the decision to go to McKinsey. In your, you know, over the next kind of decade, you worked with a ton of different types of organizations, which is one of those things that I think, you know, easy to connect the dots going back the other way. But at the time, you're just meeting more and more and more organizations. Did that help you, you know, kind of take some of those military experiences and then be able to see how a ton of different organizations operate internally, it seems like that would be a really valuable experience. Yeah. And I, I would say, look, I've, I've been through probably 40 or 50 companies that I've led or driven some type of uh, strategic decision-making in over the years. And I would say even starting back at my days at General Mills were extremely formative because the General Mills time, you run a full P&L and you do everything from the creative around advertising, all the product strategy, the R&D. Um, and you just, you have a, a real um, appreciation for the full 360 of business. So even today in all that I've done, I would say that that experience really helped shape me. But then when you then you know, compare and contrast that against lots of different companies across lots of different industries. And I sometimes joke that, you know, I've been in every industry from the specialty chemical industry where you produce the first chemical citric acid out of a, out of a chemical cracker to the garbage industry where you recycle every product that's been made and um, all the different functions within that. And I think that's the type of thing that McKinsey gives you access to is, the breadth of industry, the breadth of functional areas, and really tackling tough strategic and operational problems. So 2014 time frame, lady named Meg knocks on your door. How does that, uh, how does that happen? It's funny that ties back to the military in kind of a crazy way. Um, I was at KKR. I was an operating partner there. Um, I was leading our New York office and I was living here in California, uh, moving my family uh, in the after they finished school to uh, New York. I was spending every week out there. And one of my brother's classmates from West Point, who was class of 94, uh, had left. He was at Silver Lake and he and I knew each other well through my brother and his classmates, but also kind of through the private equity uh, uh, network. He had left and was working for um, Meg and he called me and said Meg had was looking for a senior operating private equity partner to really help her accelerate the transformation at HP. And uh, he said, you should meet her. And I said, well, look, I um, have always admired her. Um, I studied her back in the business school days when she was at eBay and would welcome any opportunity to, to meet Meg Whitman, even though I wasn't considering, you know, leaving uh, KKR at the time. And so uh, I, I said that and he said, well, do you have a resume? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I like had to write like really quickly, like update a resume and, and send it over. And, and then uh, next day he called me and said, hey, she wants to meet you Saturday at her house. And this was like happening remarkably fast. And um, 
So I told my wife about this and my wife was pregnant with our third child and we were about to move to New York and we had just done a house hunting trip in New York in January where it was snowing horizontally with a woman who was several months pregnant. And she said, we're not going to New York. <laughs> I'm like, but I, I, I told her, I said, I, haven't, I don't have a job. I don't have anything. There's like, she's like, oh, I, but if there's a possibility, we're not going to New York. And so things just came together and Meg and I had a great meeting and, you know, she told me her philosophy and I asked her, well, why would you have gone to HP? Because it was known that HP was really challenged at the time. And she told me about the concept that HP was an American icon and really was one of the foundations of Silicon Valley. Yeah. And that it was in trouble and that there was a need for someone to step up and um, do something to really kind of save an American icon. And she felt compelled to do that. And I'm a mission oriented guy. And I just kind of thought, wow, I mean, she could do anything she wanted. You know, why not go be her, you know, on her side and help her do it. And that's kind of how it happened. There wasn't a lot of, I interview a lot of kids today that are putting our job offer in a spreadsheet and doing all kinds of analysis and stuff like that. And I think you can do that, but at the end of the day, sometimes you just have to go with your gut. What was the kind of honeymoon period like when you stepped on the ground, you know, new shiny stuff, meeting new people, trying to do your first 90 days, and then did it kind of sink in like, we got a, we got a long road to, road to go down here? I'm not sure in the first couple of days whether or not I thought the road was going to be long or really, really short. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you've, if you've ever read about how hard it is to transform the culture of a large company, you know, it was a hundred billion dollar company. It was a fortune 10 company that had uh, strategic and operational challenges everywhere. And it was like the story of the kid in the dike, you know, you, how many fingers do you have and toes do you have to put in the dike? And, you know, and also like bringing a guy in from the private equity industry to be a part of the senior management team and drive change. You know, I first started using some of the core kind of hundred day planning operational tools that we used at, at KKR, uh, at HP. And I remember the management team, the look that they had when I said, look, this initiative you're accountable for and here are the operating metrics and the financial metrics that you're going to drive. And we're going to do a quarterly review process on these things. I mean, people looked at me like, how long is this guy going to last? We're going to like, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a real, a real eye opener. So, you know, after you'd been there a couple of years, you kind of had this, this, you know, continued progression within the company to the point where are things turning around? Like, your role is increasing, the stuff around you is changing. Um, were you happy where things were going? I think in the early days, I was just trying to learn and figure out who the right people in the organization were to really coalesce with, to drive change. Because there's a whole, in large global organizations, there's typically few people that are catalysts for change. And it's really about building alliances and coalitions that can actually drive change. And there's lots of people, as, as Meg would call them, the antibodies in the organization that want to kill change. And so- I love that, um, antibodies. That's yeah. really good. No, that's, that's, I stole that word from her, but it is, it's absolutely true. And it's remarkably hard and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time because, you know, you you have to convince people 
uh, and the right people that uh, there's a need for change and there's a compelling need for change. And then you have to build that coalition so that it drives. And frankly, in the early days, you know, all of my influence and power really came from, from Meg. And, you know, and then over time it came from other people in and around the management team who had influence that, you know, I got to spend enough time with that um, around the things that we really wanted to drive change on. And then over time, once you develop credibility and you develop that coalition, uh, you can, you know, push harder. And I think that's kind of the nature of what happened over those years is I was getting more and more responsibility and building, building more and more trust and a bigger and bigger coalition. We as a team were able to drive remarkable change. And so that's, you know, the kind of the nature of how that worked. And so how did HPE like start? What was the like starting process of HPE versus, and then once, once you left? Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of public, uh, Meg's been very vocal in public about why we separated the PC and printer business, which was the, is current HP business from the Hewlett Packard enterprise business, which is really a, it was a diversified enterprise focused business. And largely it was because, you know, you had a company that was too large to be nimble yeah, and was unable to focus on the core competitive set. And these were all industries that were being disrupted. And so in order to be able to be more nimble, more focused, be able to allocate capital more efficiently towards growth opportunities, we needed to separate these two companies and create um, really two f- more focused companies, both scale companies. They're both still $50 billion companies, but one was more focused on PCs, printing and consumer. And the other was focused on the infrastructure, software, financial services, and, um, and services to help enterprises be successful. Uh, and that's really kind of the genesis in 2015 of the two companies. And then, so when did the idea come about to create MicroFocus and what was that process like? So when we announced the Hewlett Packard Enterprise and HP split, we immediately started the process of looking at what the strategy of the company was going to be post the separation and what was going to be that focus capital allocation um, strategy. And we looked at lots of different options around, you know, do we invest in certain things? Do we do M&A in certain things? Or do we look at ways to further separate these assets? Because we took a hard look at how truly integrated and synergistic those assets were together and whether or not we were more competitive together or would it make sense to spin assets out and merge them with larger players to create more focused scale assets in each one of those classes. And we made the decision to explore the path of further separating and creating these assets. So we, we first spun, spun out, we did a, a, a spin out of our enterprise services business, which was about a $20 billion services business and merged that with a company called CSC and created a new entity called DXC. And then we very quickly afterwards followed that with the spin of the software division and the merge with MicroFocus to create a much larger enterprise software company, which was branded MicroFocus. 
And then, so when you kind of went into the role as CEO, what was, what was your thought process going to that? Was that something that was really exciting for you? Knew that it was going to be a challenge? Like what was, you know, this is your first time to be, you know, you'd kind of been very, you know, entrepreneurial in terms of like being an owner throughout your career of different things. But this was the first time being CEO. Was that something that you were nervous about, scared about, excited about, a bit of both? All of the above. I mean, you know, I, I would say it, it kind of happened gradually. So it wasn't like a, uh, you know, rip the bandaid off thing. So, um, you know, I had been leading the, the I've been responsible for the operations of the leasing business, um, $13 billion balance sheet uh, leasing business at HP. And then um, spending a lot of time with the software division as we thought about spinning it out and really trying to get the operational components and structural components right um, in that software business. Then when we sold it uh, and we announced the the merger, it was one year from the time that we announced the merger to the time that we were actually able to carve out the division oh, wow. and then merge it. So at the time of the announcement, um, I stepped in to take the role as the general manager of that software division. So I then ran the the software division and the carve out of the software division from Hewlett Packard Enterprise and the merger and integration with Microfocus. So we essentially um, did a a dual listing. So we relisted the the uh, call it the HPE portion of the, of the business, which was three quarters of the combined software business post that merger on the New York stock exchange. So we kind of did an IPO yeah, and we were listed on the London uh, exchange as well. So it, it was a complex transaction. We, we then merged those uh, two companies in September, 2017. Um, I was asked by the board of Microfocus to take over as the CEO of the, uh, it was the seventh largest enterprise software company in the world and run that as a public company CEO uh, at that time. When you decided to leave, was there something that you felt like you had done to get all of this stuff across the finish line um, and you had other things that you wanted to work on in your career or what was kind of your thought process and when you left? Yeah, it wasn't, um, I didn't actually make a decision to leave HP. It was more, I was leading the software division and the software division was a transaction that I had led and led the strategy around it. So it was more executing the strategy that we had outlined and got an agreement with, with our board and our shareholders. Yeah, And I felt the kind of the responsibility and accountability to get it done. And I remember one conversation with Meg where I was expressing some reservation about doing it. And she said, remember, this is your idea and your strategy. And now it's up to you to execute it. (laughs) You don't get to be an innocent bystander here. Uh, Meg was very big on accountability. Yeah, no kidding. After Micro Focus, you're hanging out with the Andreessen Horowitz folks for, for a little bit. And was there a little twinkle twinkle in your eye that you wanted to start a business that eventually became called Zebo? That's a great question. I think like there's a couple dimensions to that the first is um, when I was leading Microfocus and became a you know global public company CEO, um, I realized that that was something that was unsustainable for me and my family, and it was based in London majority of my employees were global outside the United States. And I was traveling globally two weeks a month 
um, and then traveling for customers other than that, working 24 seven. And, you know, it's, for some people, that's a really exciting thing. And, you know, I kind of, during that time frame, had, had lost my mother and I had my wife had some illness and it just really kind of regrounded me about what was important to me yeah. uh, as a person uh, and what my responsibilities were. And, you know, I decided that I wanted to actually step out of that and do something that was much closer to home. So I think the first step of that was, you know, I needed to reground with my family. So I took six months off and spent real time with my kids, uh, three daughters, uh, did lots of one-on-one trips with them and my wife and just kind of reground myself, uh, for a period of time. And during that time, um, Mark Andreessen called me and asked me if, uh, if I wanted to come and help him build companies. And he said, listen, you're a, you're a builder. You're somebody that needs to be on the front end of building a company. And that, that really resonated with me. And he gave me the opportunity, which I'm, you know, really grateful for, to really come and be a part of a, a special firm at Andreessen Horowitz, and help some of the kind of uh, early stage companies um, learn some of the things that I've learned over the, you know, the life of my career. That opened my eyes to this concept. I've always been a uh, what I would call a a entrepreneur. Yeah, I think Mark Cuban coined that phrase. Oh, I, I love it's, it. It's actually really true. So no, this is, this is a big thing. This is one of my, I have, I have few like hard and fast things that I get very frustrated by. And this is one of them when people are like pejorative about the term entrepreneur, I'm like, it's the greatest thing. I'm, that's like the shark tank stuff, all this stuff. I love it. The reason why is because this is what we should want. Like we want people to know that they can build things and to be, and you can't decide you want to be an entrepreneur until you want, like you're a entrepreneur first, like you got to want it first and then you get to try it. And even if you're walking around, talking to people, going to events, you know, pretending like you have a startup and you don't really have anything off the ground, guess what? Like that's a valuable, really valuable experience to see if you can cut your teeth. And I love that stuff. Like, totally. And I, I think there's two elements to that there's one of wanting it. And there's another thing, which I think is this key point of actually doing it. Exactly. Yeah. And his, I think the main point was like, you can always have great ideas and, and be a thought leader and like, you know, advise people like I was doing, but like to go from that to like, I'm putting all my chips on this number, this color, and I'm all in is different. And I think that concept of, and as I was, as I was spending six months really helping entrepreneurs and I was, it just had, it grew an unbelievable admiration for them and what they had done. And it's not just, listen, entrepreneurship is not about the idea. It's about taking the idea and shaping it into something that actually works and building a company and a culture and, you know, really uh, being able to pivot and being able to push through those things that are are, are remarkably challenging. And so I think for me, it was more of a gradual journey of like deciding that what, you know, what I had chased my entire career of trying to grab that brass ring. When I got it, I was like, I don't really like it. I mean, I, I actually want to do something different. And then, you know, having someone who I really respected and, and valued and, and Meg was also a, a bit of this as well. I spent a lot of time talking to her as well. And she had gone from leading HP to starting Quibi. Yeah. And, um, and you, on you the know, full, like, I mean, really doing the startup, raising a ton of money, doing the starting whole thing. From nothing. Yeah. And, um, and I was shocked by that because I'm like, I thought 
when we were doing all the major things that we were doing at HP, it was so that she could go to Tully ride and retire, yeah. you know, and enjoy the rest of her life. She could do anything, um, go sit on boards, be a, you know, kind of influence politics, whatever. But she went and started a startup from yep. scratch and, you know, talking to her through that. And then Mark, and then these entrepreneurs that I got exposed to at Andreessen Horowitz, I just got the bug. And, um, I got tired of being an advisor and I listened to these things around entrepreneurship and I just said, look, it's like, I want to like, what, I, what do I do best? I'm a leader. I'm a builder. I'm somebody who takes a strategy and an idea and like makes it happen. And so, you know, that, that's kind of how I kind of stumbled into this. Well, you know, and I want to, I want to take a second to acknowledge like, how important it is to like take a knee and that that is not a popular opinion ever. Like nobody in public circles is going to go and say, Hey, you know, good job, Ian, you, you took a knee for six months. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And it's not a, ever a popular opinion. And it's not ever something that anyone else knows your personal experience. And I think that it's something that when you're on the treadmill, and you're going really, really fast for a long time. Your body doesn't know, you know, what the quitting point is. But when you decide to get off the treadmill for a second and you get to talk to your family and you know what that, you know, and you get to reset and you get to reprioritize how important that is. And I think a lot of folks in business and entrepreneurs really struggle with like the pre the outside pressure to perform and succeed and build things to the detriment of like their like long-term health and safety and, and, and family happiness. And I just think like, I'm curious to like how you felt, you know, after going through those six months of spending time with your family that like, Hey, I made the right decision here. Well, listen, I think there's, so I've, I've actually uh, been coaching and counseling several executives who have kind of considered or are doing what I did taking time off and stepping down from, you know, large uh, leadership roles. And what I've noticed, and, I, and it's probably because I went through it myself, is that if you're always at the top and always been successful and always a type A person where you're driving towards, you know, major outcomes, it's almost impossible to step aside. Yeah. It is challenging everything that is meaningful to you and your life and your status and your, your, your sense of self. And, uh, it's remarkably hard and there's external pressure, but all the people I talk to, it's more the internal pressure. They feel like the clock is ticking. And if they don't get into that next thing fast, that they're, you know, not going to find it. And um, what I could tell you is if I wouldn't have taken the time that I did, I would be back in a probably global enterprise software role again. And not that that would be bad, but it's just, you know, I wouldn't have explored the opportunity to go do something disruptive and to use kind of the creative side of my capacity and to build a team and, and, a, and a strategy and a business from nothing, which frankly for me would be is, is the hardest thing that I could have done. And I think people talk about like letting the team down or like letting the company down or things like that, that like this guilt that gets manifested of like, if I do blank, I am letting people down. But the truth is 
you're letting people down if you're trying to push through something that you shouldn't push through as well. Because if you're not focused on the mission, I mean, this is like one of the classic military things. Like if your mind is elsewhere and it's not on the mission because you have a lot of problems going on, or if one of your soldiers has a ton of problems at home and, you know, can't pay their tax bill that's coming up, or, you know, they're, they're, you know, having problems with their spouse, their kids or their family or whatever it is, if their mind's not on the mission, like they're not really in the fight. And that's, that's the worst case scenario because you think someone is in charge and doing the right things, but they might, might not be not, not to say that you were doing that. I think but it's also, I think there's two things. One is like, I think you're hundred percent right about being the mission, but I think there's also a thing around like, what do you really want to do with your life? Yeah. And for me, it was less about the mission because I'm really good at being present when we're in the mission. And if there is a mission, I'm going to drive to the mission, but it's a little bit around like, what do you want to be known for? And what do you want to do with your life? That was really the thing that I think the passing of my mother and the health of my wife kind of just opened my eyes to. Um, and, and before that I was driving, mm-hmm. I was just focused and driving and like, you know what, my health was a secondary thing and I was going to push through it. But it's interesting, something you said there reminded me of something tying back to the military days. When the, the One of the hardest things for me when I was a junior uh, leader in the military was when I left a unit and I thought that unit was so dependent upon me yep. and my leadership. And when I left and the new dude who came in didn't know squat and he was as green as I was. And guess what? The unit went on. Green machine rolls on. Yep. And- Like for me, it just became this realization that some institutions are set up to be greater than the leader that is there. And what I realized in big institutions, and I learned this at KKR when we bought a company where we lost the entire management company, uh, our management team. And, you know, we kind of plugged the holes as an operating team and the company did well and we made five times our money on the company and it was remarkably successful. And it just like was a lesson that I tied back to the early Lieutenant years of like institutions are oftentimes bigger than the leaders they have. And so like, I felt like my institution was stronger than, you know, just me. Totally. And it gave me the humility to be able to do the things that were right for me and my family. And the institutions that are not bigger than the person are startups because there's just not that many people. <laughs> so it's true. It's uh, and I think that that's part of the reason where you talk about the bug is it's about the amount of influence that you have on everything about creating the product, about the landing pages, the emails that you send out, the customer conversations, working with HR, doing all that stuff. Like it truly is you're responsible for every single thing. And, you know, as a CEO of an enormous company, obviously you're responsible for everything that happens and fails to happens. But when you're the CEO of a startup, you're actually the one doing it. <laughs> um, what has that been like working uh, and building Zebo so far? You know, I would say the first thing kind of is that I had a lot of admiration for entrepreneurs when I was advising them. I have more now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because... As I tell people all the time, it looks a lot sexier than it is. 
Oh, you know, big when time. you tell people, oh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a, you know, seed stage startup, you know, people are congratulations. I'm like, congratulations on what? Like <laughs> I haven't done anything, you know? And, um, and it's actually, but there is a congratulations due because taking the plunge is a big deal. I, I totally. think, that, I think there is like a certain congratulations that's due of like deciding to jump is like, you know, it's like saying you're training for a marathon. It's like, hey, at least you put it out there that you're training for the marathon. Like the fact that you're tying like your reputation to say, I'm I'm training for this marathon. That means you got to either do the marathon or you or you know you tap out. But I, I think that there is congratulations. But it is like, yeah, I, I I'm with you there. Yeah, no, and 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 uh, and the other thing I would say is it's remarkably harder than you think. So it looks sexier and it's way harder. And I'll tell you the hardest thing for me personally, and I don't think this is true for everyone, but for me personally is when you've always been on a team and you start and you're by yourself yep. and you're out there with a backpack chasing around, trying to get someone to actually join you, to believe in you or your idea. And you're for years and years and years are used to people begging to join your organizations. Yeah. And now you're begging them to join your organization and you have a, a young, super smart, talented one-time entrepreneur who went to Stanford, look at you in the face and say, so why should I believe you're going to be successful as an entrepreneur? And like, you're half offended. You're half like, well, I don't know, maybe I won't be (laughs) successful as an entrepreneur, but I'm damn well going to try. It's, it is humbling in a new style of humble. I mean, I went from having access to corporate jets to fly around the world to middle seat on Southwest airlines where nobody knows who I am. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. It's the same experience, you know, the getting out of the military where I used to joke around how like I had a driver, right. You know, I had my Humvee, I had my driver, you know, we went wherever we needed and it was just kind of like, you know, you could just take your team and you could reallocate people on, on the, you know, on the fly and figure that stuff out. And you go from that to like, you know, every CEO, every co-founder of a startup always talks about how talent is the hardest part. And it's just the thing that you take for granted. Like it is. And, and some of these people, they are taking a flyer. They're betting their career on an idea and a person. And that's, basically it. And, and their family's livelihood. Totally. And that creates a sense of kind of accountability to making sure that this thing is successful. Yeah. So what's the hardest thing that you've dealt with so far? I mean, I like I said, I mean, I think it is absolutely recruiting. It's, it's finding super talented people to take the plunge because by definition, if they're super talented, they have lots of options. Yeah. And so if they have lots of options, Like they're betting all their chips. This is not like private equity where you have a diversified portfolio. The one asset that they have is their own personal talent. And they're betting that on the idea, the company, and a belief that you can execute and build something special. And I think that's remarkably hard and humbling. And you have to compete asymmetrically all the time because you can never pay what Google can pay. And Google's in your backyard. You can never afford the benefits, you know, that Facebook can give and they're in your backyard, you know, and you can never, 
you know, even with stock, I, I think it's so far. I think the equity stuff is hilarious to me because everybody always talks about like, you know, equity and how important all this stuff is. You're like, my buddy at name fortune 50 company du jour has way better options and will make way more money with their options over time, even than, you know, like getting early equity in some of these startups. Like it's not even close. Like you talk about like, you know, my buddy at Lowe's, like his options are great. Like you're talking about, that's a lot of money over time. It's like five years of working there is way more money than you would make with like X amount of percentage of a startup, even if, even if they do pretty well and the chances of that are low. So like all the people that kind of like chase the equity stuff, like it's not really that real. <laughs> like well, it's interesting. Cause I think, um, I believed before I did this, that this, um, kind of generalization that people in Silicon Valley are more risk taking and they're willing to take far more risk with their careers. And what I find is that it's really hard when you're seed and unless you go raise a huge A and you hit the press, like when you're like a seed stage startup and you're like really, really early stage, there are a lot of people that say, listen, I'm a BCD only kind of guy. So they're taking risk, but they're taking risk at a different stage than we're at. And so the tricky thing is like, how do you get those really talented people that you need in a year when you're a B series company or two years when you're a D series company now? Yeah. So exactly. that you can build that company. And that's a real, real trick and challenge. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff I think is just about timing, right? It's like taking investment. It's like the time when you need investment is the time when investors don't want to give it to you. And the time when you don't need investment is when they want to put money in. You're like, Hey, I don't need your money anymore. Like my money's making money now. So I needed you six months ago. <laughs> uh, but I think it's the same way with talent, right? It's like, I needed you to build the product six months ago, but like we, we, with duct tape, uh, figured it out and we got to the point where we are now. And now it's like, you know, yeah, it'd be great to have you on the team, but like, congrats, you're, you'd be in a, two levels below that role now. And uh, it's probably not fit for either of us anymore. Well, there's a lot of people that say they want to go build a product from zero to one. And then when you make them an offer and they have a competitive offer, they go to the established company because it's more money and more equity. Yeah. But they're tweaking features and functions as opposed to literally creating from scratch. And so the, that's the thing that's really tricky is how do you find those people that really want to create from scratch and are willing to put their chips on the table? And that's like, it's not for everyone. I mean, there, believe me, there's times when I look in the mirror and my wife is like looking at me and going like, you could do what? And you're doing <laughs> what? And, um, you know, like you just have to stay the course. Uh, I want to talk about kind of the uh, raising money side of things. Is it an advantage, disadvantage, somewhere in the middle that you've had a successful business career going into this? You're technically a first-time founder. So when you were going into these sort of meetings, and obviously you have a lot of connections at, at Andreessen, which is nice and, and all of that, but how did you go about thinking, we're going to start this company, we're going to seek investment, how are we going to do that? Are we going to invest in ourselves? I'm curious to your thought process. It's really, uh, I mean, I, I think I have a unique advantage because I spent a lot of years in private equity. I spent a lot of years, I mean, as a public company CEO and doing a carve out, you're in meeting tons of investors. You know, you, uh, as, a, as someone who's been in and around various different venture capital, private equity, it, it, so I, like the whole concept of 
raising money and how to access money is 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 a bit, I think, unfair from you know the average entrepreneur who's sure. just starting a company has never done any of that. Um, and I would say that my co-founders Gregor Watson and Rob Blumker had raised a seed fund contingent upon finding a co-founder and CEO before. So there was some funding there to really actually recruit me, and then. Um, and then from that point on, we closed the seed round uh, when I joined, and then we raised uh, another basically two and a half times, uh, or you know one and a half times what we originally raised in in folks that were friends and family. So I think it's it's um, capital is is abundant right now for the right team yep. and the right idea, and I think it's a combination of the two that matter. Uh, and look, we'll see. I mean, we're gonna we have to be successful in order to continue to raise. Um, if we do something stupid and burn a bunch of money and, you know, don't um, create a, a world-class team, then it's going to be a lot harder to raise. What I will say that there's a high correlation between the team you build, the money you raise, and the idea. And so, like, you got to do all of those things. How'd you meet your co-founders? It was really kind of serendipitous. Again, I mean, you're you're going to think that my whole career is just kind of a random walk. And to a certain extent, it might be. Um, when I was in Andreessen, there was a company that I was working with that was overlapping with uh, Kosla. And I, so I got to know the operating partner and the lead talent partner at, at Kosla. And um, since they had kind of uh, contingent funded this, uh, this idea, they put me in touch with my co-founders. And like I had been a landlord for 20 years. Yeah. So I've been a landlord for 20 years. I love this space. It was a hobby. Um, and, um, I had also spent a lot of time in financial services at KKR because we had bought a number of tech enabled insurance companies and insurance brokerage companies. And I just got enamored by the inefficiency and the opportunities for improvement in the insurance financial services part of the, of the industry and how tech could really enable that. And so when I met these guys, I just thought, wow, okay this is a hobby. This is something I love. Yeah. Something I really understand because I've done it. Um, and, um, and I love financial services and putting technology together with financial services together with my hobby of real estate was just an opportunity that seemed too good to be true. And so I spent a little bit of time really diligent. like, how real is this? And it just got to the point where I just, decided that this was a good enough platform to go build something special, big enough market, um, great co-founders, great backers, and um, something I was passionate about and something that I knew something about and that I could uniquely add value to with my technology and, uh, and insurance uh, background. And so that's why I jumped in. Did you look at it and say, hey, I'm going to be really happy if I spend the next 10 years of my life building this thing. I think you have to look at it that way because it's like, if you look at all these successful companies that are IPOing and, you know, they get all the hype, these things aren't, weren't started two years ago. No. I mean, these are, it's blood, sweat and tears for a decade. And so you got to look at it with that view and you've got to also, for especially something like a financial services company that we're building, you know, Zebo is essentially a, um, a banking and payments platform, an insurance platform, and a um, and a lending platform for landlords. 
who really need those assets and those services in order to buy, grow, and manage and sell their, their portfolios. And to build something like that is hard because there's regulatory and compliance yep. and you can't just fly by the seat of your pants. This is a highly regulated industry. And if you do something stupid, then you will get shut down and you'll get shut down um, uh, gradually. And there's an industry where people don't give you their money or borrow money from you unless they trust you. Yeah. And you have to build a trusted brand. You have to build a, um, a compliant platform and you have to use technology to the customer's advantage. And you can never lose sight of that. And I think sometimes um, uh, some folks do, you have to build, you, we've got all this wonderful technology and data insight, but it has to be used for the customer's advantage. And I think that's what we're keeping focus on at Zebo. I mean, it's such an obvious, you know, like problem that I'm sure that once you saw and like did your diligence on it, that you're just like, this has been such a pain point for me. I'm curious, kind of like early uh, feedback from, you know, customers and doing your, you know, during your lean startup action and, and talking to people, what's the, what's the consensus on the ground? Well, listen, I wouldn't say there's consensus on the ground, but I will say that um, what landlords will tell you, there's really kind of a couple big segments. So the institutional, there's a huge portion of the residential real estate is owned by institutionals, like yeah. big private equity, REITs, et cetera. Those folks are not our customer because they have all, they have a CFO, they have yep. a business, they have a balance sheet, they have private wealth managers and they have, you know, deep, deep relationships with carriers. Like those guys have their full solution, but the mom and pop landlord of which the majority of landlords in the United States and around the world are independent landlords. They don't have the same playing field. They don't have the same access to competitive financial services. When they go to get a loan or insurance, they're filling out forms and they're filling out the same form that they did on the same property 10 years ago or five years ago. And they're going and trying to piece all this stuff together and manage it. They're chasing tenants for rent. And um, it's those folks that we're focused on. I remember when I was running out, when I was looking at running out my place, because when I was in the army, I, I bought a house and uh, I was going to Afghanistan. I'm like, how, like, how would I even do this? Right. You're just like, like, it, is this? And then you had, you know, actually we had um, someone on the show earlier, Ian Flau, uh, West Point guy who is like a pro. He had like five houses by the time he was, uh, you know, out of the military or something like that. Some people are just get it. But the average person, it's just way too daunting to figure out how to rent this place out. And you're just end up doing stuff with, you know, Google Docs or whatever it is. And you're just doing stuff that's not compliant and it's not legal, probably. Uh, in a lot of cases, I was always did things legally. I was going to say, speak for yourself. I mean, I, you know, everything we do is legal and compliant. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you just have so many people that have no idea how to do this. And the whole prospect is like, they just need someone that they can talk to that can help them get through that. It, it is um, remarkable. The tens of millions of uh, independent landlords in the United States who the, they're always seeking information. Yeah. Because just like what you said, it's like, how do I do this? How do I stay compliant? Where can I get forms? You know, like, what do I do with a security deposit? 
Well, then what am I required to do with the security deposit? Why do I now have, if you have multiple properties, why do I have 20 bank accounts? Like, you know, security deposits and, you know, and the working capital account and, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, what our whole vision is, is for that independent landlord is to fundamentally improve the experience they have with all the financial services they need to buy, grow and manage their portfolio and with property insights. So, you know, what should I be doing from as far as rent? Um, how can I save OPEX uh, in order to improve my cash flow and net operating income? You know, when should I buy? When should I sell? Yep. Like what markets are good? Um, those, all of that data, independent landlords don't have access to, and we can provide that. I was talking to a, uh, someone recently that basically sold a, a, a three unit piece of property way back in the day, fit over 50 years ago in uh, Walnut Creek, uh, and bought a storage area in Mississippi. Probably was not the best choice at the time to do that. Uh, but you know, hindsight is 2020. And I think that those type of things where like, again, if you've never done this before, if you inherit a piece of property and you, you have no, like, where do you go? Look, when I got into real estate, I got into it. Cause I, I mean, you'll appreciate this when I got out of the army and I'm like six years post my peers, I had nothing. I literally had no money. I had no 401k. I had no retirement. We don't get that in the army, at least back in the day when I was in. And unless you went 20 years and got retirement, you had nothing when you got out. And the only thing that I had from an asset perspective was when I was a cadet at West Point, uh, senior year, they give you an unsecured loan to buy a car. And it's from USAA and it's a really low interest loan. And I remember I got that and I thought, well, should I buy a car or should I buy stock? Yep. And so I took 100% of that loan and I bought stock. Now, I'm not sure that that was a really smart deal. I did, it, but I, like, did the, I did the exact same thing. So I got my loan in 2008, put it all in the stock market. For those of you who are experts in uh, what happened. Your timing uh, was impeccable. Yeah, timing was impeccable. So I always joke that I, I, I bought at the absolute top of the market, which was really painful, but... Uh, I bought a house at the bottom of the market. So it was like, I, I feel like I somehow, you know, figured it out, but no, it's the same sort of thing. And the only reason why I was able to do those things, the only reason was because of the, the loan that we got from USAA and then the BAH that you get from the time that you're, uh, from you graduate to your first duty station. And there was like a lot of money. And that was the down payment for, for my house. Like, well, I remember I bought, I bought my first house. I, I didn't have any money. So I yeah. literally levered at 90%. Oh, I and did too. So I, I put 10% down and levered at 90%. Now, if the market had crashed, I was toast. But the thing was, is I got lucky. I bought the, the only house in the middle. This is in the farmer's field in Minnesota. I bought the only house. It was the demo. And it was, they were going to build a neighborhood. <laughs> I did. I bought that. And it was in the middle of the neighborhood. They were supposedly going to put 300 houses in this area. And we we're like, oh, we could see our house from like, you know, the beginning of the neighborhood. And we're like, oh, that's it. There's only house. And we didn't get to pick anything because it was all spec <laughs> oh and like 90% leverage. And, you know, I just, we just got lucky that the house doubled in value. But the big thing was, I listened to this radio show of all these guys. It didn't seem like they had as good of education as I did who 
were multimillionaires because they had used leverage to buy storage units and had generated cash flow. And they were talking about the value of cash flow and leverage. And I think like I had a mathematical economics degree, but like we were studying econometrics and like I wrote my, you know, senior thesis on like oligopoly theory and oh, how totally. the balance of trade yep. is impacted by, you know, um, oligopoly. Like, I mean, I wrote about Boeing and Airbus in the nineties, like there's nothing to do with this kind of stuff. And I was just inspired by these guys. And so I started talking to a bunch of people, which is how most landlords do it. You talk to people that you heard were in real estate and you get advice from them and they help you and then you get into it. And that's kind of how I got into it. But that's, I mean, that is the ultimate like trailing signal thing, right? Talking to people who bought property in the time when you're not buying property <laughs> is like either the best idea or it's the worst idea. And like, you need a trusted place that you can go for this stuff. I mean, when, it, when we first talked about about your company. I was so excited about it because I'm like, this is a pain point I've lived in my life. I live it currently. It's something that like is so obvious. And the thing is, there's so much information out there and there's no place to go for this stuff that actually can give you straight answers. And then you have like, not, not to mention all of the financial stuff, which again is like this thing where in your mind, as the landlord, you don't have a insurance problem, like finance problem, this problem, that problem. You just have a big problem. Yeah, you right? want to buy, you want to buy property. You want it to be cash flow positive. You want to grow it. And you want to either be able to trade up into other properties or dish, add additional properties in like, that's the, that's what you want to do. What you don't want to do is spend a ton of time filling out 10 application forms over and over with the same information you don't want to be worrying every month whether or not your tenants are going to actually pay you and, you know, whether or not you have enough cash in your in, in your account to get paid. And like it, we ask landlords a simple question. Do you have the right insurance for the right price? Ninety percent of them say I have no idea. Oh, absolutely. Why? Because I got the insurance from Joe because I needed to close the loan and I needed insurance to close the loan. And so Joe told me that this was the insurance policy. I needed to close the loan. And um, the lack of transparency and the lack of choice in the insurance market, especially around rental properties, just, it's just mind boggling to me. Um, the other thing that's really just crazy is landlords carry a lot of cash. Why? Because they have all these security deposits. Let's say you have 10 properties and you've got 10 units in each property. You've got all this cash. Where's that cash? Either it's sitting in a bank account or it's sitting um, in your property management manager's account. And guess how much interest you're getting on that? If any, 0.1%, 0.01%, nothing. And you've got a working capital account where you're getting payments in and you're paying things out and you generally keep a big cash balance in there because you don't know if you're not going to get paid. Yep. And most landlords don't know that they should and can be getting interest on those accounts. And we're going to change that. It's just an awesome, one of those futuristic kind of problems that doesn't seem like it's a futuristic problem until you're in the moment, right? I'm sure that when you do that, that calculation for a landlord and just show, this is what your money would look like, you know, with us. And this is what your money would look like without us. We'll just tell them what they lost in the last 10 years. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I, I think, um, it's similar to Uber, except that we're going to make money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> but if you were trying to get a cab in New York City before Uber, 
it was a remarkably painful process. They didn't turn their thing on. They, if, they, if you weren't going far enough, they kicked you out of the cab. You know, you had to pay cash because they wouldn't accept credit cards. Even if they had a MasterCard sign on their, on their window, the cabs were dirty, yep. you name it. And then Uber came. And I remember the first time I clicked that button and someone came and picked me up and I didn't have to take any money out. I didn't have to pay cash. And like, they were super friendly and the car was clean. I got out and like, it charged my credit card. I was like, what? Like turns and out. I could, and I could actually see when they were going to pick me up. Like, it was like, this is crazy. And I kind of, in a way, look at what we're doing with Zebo as, you know, similar to the days before Uber for ride hailing. Yeah. And again, we will make money. So when you finally decided to take the plunge, start the company, you know, you form it, you start working. Any, any advice uh, from Mark? Well, you know, I called Mark because uh, I told him, you know, that he was the cause of me leaving. <laughs> and I said, you got me the bug, you gave me the bug. And now I got to go build a company. And he was super excited for me. And, you know, we, we talked about the idea. He said, look, big idea. And he spent a lot of time talking about make sure you get the right technical people on the team, because that's over time going to be the differentiator between being a traditional financial services company and being a truly differentiated financial services company. And that was kind of one of the the biggest piece of feedback he gave. And he just said, good luck and let's stay in touch. And as you start to build the team and start to have success, let's talk. What about May? She's on her own startup journey. This is way, she told me, she said, this is way harder than you think. <laughs> and you need to have endurance and be able to push through really challenging times. And there will be times when, you get super down, super frustrated, and you just have to grin and bear it and figure out how to keep going. I love that. Was there any pieces of advice that you were giving startups when you were working at, at Andreessen and Horowitz that looking back on it now, you're like, maybe I was given some, uh, some good advice that I thought, but was maybe not as actionable as I realized? Well, you know, what's funny is maybe I was giving them advice and now periodically I am like, well, I should really do what I told others to do. <laughs> yeah. Like for instance, just being really clear around what your value proposition is and, and how you're differentiated and giving tangible proof points of differentiation and things like that. That's by the way, that's stuff I learned when I was at General Mills, just really the basics of establishing a really compelling point of difference. But yeah, no, I think it's, it's um, I'm trying to practice what I preached. Yeah. The simplicity, you know, confusion equals no sale, that sort of stuff is so everlasting. And you can tell that to 50 different entrepreneurs. And then every day you look at your copy and you're like, why am I so confusing? Like, why is this so confusing? How is our pitch so confusing? Like, this is not crystal clear. But one of the other things that, you know, this idea of customer service being a differentiator is something that is, it does not brief well on a deck. You know what I mean? Like you tell that to investors that customer service is going to be a differentiator that will never, it doesn't sound scalable. It doesn't sound like something that you can build a moat around. It doesn't sound like any of those things. And yet some of the best companies of all time have the best customer service. And I think we're, we're entering this, this world where the pre-sale spending 80% of your money on the pre-sales process and 20% of your money after that, that is being inverted now and spending the majority of your money after you get a customer to make sure that they stay a customer. I'm curious if you have any thoughts to like 
how you go about building a customer centric business. Listen, I mean, if you think about what we're doing is we're taking financial service, we're a marketplace. So we're going to take banking products and um, loan products and insurance products from carriers, banks, and mortgage providers. And we're going to package those and present those to our customers in a way that speaks to their unique needs. So, you know, whether it's a loan or a deposit account or the way they accept rent from their tenants, underlying products are from banks. So what we're doing to differentiate is, number one, using the technology that exists today to provide that to them and present it to them in a way that reduces the complexity, that reduces the amount of time, that reduces the amount of, uh, of data that they have to input, both at the point in time where they want the product and then over time. And then providing them with a 360 experience that's so distinctive to landlords that it's it, it will differentiate in the marketplace because there are no, the big banks today, they're providing landlords with one of 300 products and landlords are one of every customer segment from a passbook savings account for my daughter to the treasury department services that they offer to Hewlett Packard. Yeah. You know, it just, there's no focus on a vertical relationship based financial service that is truly distinctive. And that's what we're going to do. You mentioned that building the right team, hiring the right talent is the hardest part of the job. One of the hardest parts of the job, anything from your military background that helps you do that or any frameworks that you, you used to use that you, you kind of keep with you. You know, I think for me, it's just, it's really the stuff I learned around leadership. I think if you, for me, I always look for someone who has some distinctive skill set. So either it's general analytics or capability, or it's specialized knowledge, uh, performance marketing, but something that's unique and differentiated with a track record of success. The second thing would be character, like really are they a good person? Are they genuine? Do they treat people with respect? Do they treat people when they come in the office with respect? Do they treat the waiters and waitresses when we're at a dinner with respect? Do they um, follow up? Or, or it's just the basic thing. As I always tell people, it's what you learn from your mom and dad when you were growing up. Yeah. And, and that, that to me is so remarkably important because I think it really goes to, can they lead? And can they be part of a team? Because you can have the best individuals in the world and have a completely disastrous team. And so for me, it's that capability coupled with that character. And then the last piece is just desire. You know, they could be a great person and just don't have the drive. They could be a really talented, smart person and don't have the drive. And I think it's the combination of those things that I look for. And, you know, that's no different than when I was in the army. Capability, character, and drive. I love it. That's pretty good. <laughs> Any other final like recommendations or lessons learned or tips that you have for, uh, you know, finding talent and, and bringing them into the organization? Look, I, stuff I had to learn, I, you know, it's um, people have to believe this is an emotional thing. It's not, it's not a financial thing because if it was financial, they would go somewhere else. Yeah. Because like 90% of startups fail and you know, you can probability weight your equity. And 
the reality is they have to believe. They have to believe in you and they have to believe in the idea and they have to believe that together you can build a team that can execute on that idea. And I think it's really emotional at the end of the day. And it's not just the individual, it's the family um, and the people around them. You know, if they're single, you know, they're talking to their parents. Um, if they're uh, in a relationship, they're talking to their significant other, it, you know, and everyone's talking to their friends and their network. And it's, um, it's something that you just really have to create belief. And there's lots of things you can do to reinforce that belief. Like, for instance, we didn't have a really nice website and, you know, we're building one um, because people go to the website and go, well, you know what? It, I don't know. It kind of looks jankety like somebody built it on you know, some site and I actually built it. So, you know. I've, oh man, I've, I've done that so many times. <laughs> I, but I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned the family thing. It's one of the things in the military that uh, both was so well done, but also very frustrating um, was like, you know, the hail and farewells, the things like this, how you brought people in. The military had some weird stuff around like, you know, actually having to be a spouse because of benefits and different sort of things like that. But how you integrate a family into your organization and knowing that you have to do that. People always, you know, since my co-founders are married, people, you know, that's always kind of like one of those things where they're like, oh, isn't that weird? I'm like, you're married to the family anyways. Like you're that person's uh that person's partner is invest invested into this company 100 percent It is their spouse's job to be here and it's how they support their family. If you don't think that like that person is equally important. You're crazy. No, I've had great people where, you know, they wanted to join and I wanted them to join and they go home and they spend real time with their family and they say, well, look, I, I can't do it because, you know, I've got a, a wife who's got a risky job and I got two kids in private school and like, it's just too risky for me. Um, and that's unfortunate, but it's true. Like it, it is, you're recruiting the whole family and and they're betting their lives. I mean, they're betting their careers on you and the company and the idea. And so just really acknowledging that, uh, I think, is is important. One of the things that we did for uh, one of our employees who's in the hiring cycle, but they hadn't signed the, the contract yet, um, and they were getting married, and we sent them a wedding gift. We're like, hey, if you don't join, that's totally cool, but it's pretty cool to get married, so congrats. And his uh, now wife was just like super appreciative. I'm like, wow, that's a really thoughtful thing. And something we just kind of did on the whim, you know, start up like using, you know, X amount of dollars to do that of like, no, I, we didn't use company money and just used our own money and just said like, hey, this is important. And that that was a huge deal. That's awesome. I mean, it's all about the people. I mean, like I said in the beginning about the military, it's about being genuine, connecting with people. And I think that's, that's no, no matter how technology evolves, at the end of the day, there's no substitute for that emotional connection that you have with people. I love it. Chris, you're the man. Thanks for coming by. We're so excited to follow the journey of Zebo and uh, and just and have you on the show. Thanks for sharing. Hey, thanks, Sonny. It's been great. Take care. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. 
If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.